before compared to the other teachers that they've experienced. So the question that they have is, is this Jesus of Nazareth, is he teaching a brand new message? Is he doing away with the Old Testament teaching that we are so accustomed to? So what kind of new teaching is this? And Jesus responds to that and says, I'm not teaching anything new here. In verse 17, this is the guiding uh, passage. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so to expound on the heart and the spirit of the Old Testament law, what he's been doing is he's been challenging the false interpretations and the false traditions that arose within this religious Jewish leaders. So Jesus, in characteristic fashion, he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said. And this is his way of bringing up the Old Testament law, and therefore, he expounds on that. And so we have seen thus far how the Jewish leaders, they've been taking sections of the Old Testament, and they've been distorting them for their own purposes. And so in this passage of this Sermon of the Mount, Jesus, he takes six different examples of how the Pharisees have been contorting the Old Testament and using them for their own benefit, So if you track with me, if you remember, Jesus began by talking about anger and how in the kingdom of God, it's not just the act of murder that is condemned, but even harboring hatred towards your neighbor, another person, that doesn't belong in Christ's kingdom. He spoke against adultery, and he raised the bar by saying, it's not only the act of adultery, but even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, that is the same as committing the act of adultery. Last week, we saw how Jesus talks about divorce and oaths and and how how commitment is something that he personally holds highly. So we're going to continue on the Sermon on the Mount on these next two examples that Jesus gives. The first is on retaliation, and the next on loving one's enemies. In these past few weeks, we've tackled some difficult topics, anger, adultery, lust, divorce, the value of commitment, but as difficult and sensitive as those topics have been, I think today's topic might be the most difficult of them all because for many of us, Jesus' call for us to love our enemies means for us to lay down our rights And to do so, it seems to go against the grain of every inch of our body, especially the currents of our culture. But because it so powerfully challenges us, and because it stands against the grain of our culture, at the same time, this particular challenge that Jesus gives us, it particularly stands out in this day and age. It is extremely powerful in communicating this message of the gospel that we proclaim to believe. And so in order to study this uh, section of the Bible, uh, we're going to do it in two headings. And it's going to be regarding what Jesus says regarding our enemies. And the first thing he says is regarding what we should not be doing. So he speaks against personal revenge. He speaks against personal revenge. And secondly, he speaks for proactive love. For proactive love. So against personal revenge and for proactive love. And we're going to end with an application. All right? 
So let's begin. So he again starts with that phrase, you have heard it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this particular line is found in many places in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. So it's very prevalent. And it's also a very well-known statement. You might have heard it. And in fact, this kind of guiding principle, it was recognized not only in Israel, but in other na nations back then, in other ancient Near East uh, nations. For example, you might have heard of Babylon's The Code of Hammurabi that actually has a similar principle called the Lex Talionis, which means the law or justice of equal measure. It means that the punishment should fit the crime, both in its kind and its measure. So if there ever was an act of crime committed against you, then the extent of your retribution is limited to the amount of damages that was done to you, no more and no less. And so the intent behind this law, what it was, it was to limit the amount of retribution that you might want to take and have against your accuser. So if someone figuratively takes your eye, this law prevents you from taking both of his eyes, figuratively. If someone knocks out your tooth, this law, it prevents you from knocking out two of his teeth and breaking his arm and his leg. So what it does, it limits the amount of retribution. Because what was going on was, this was actually feeding this kind of chain reaction back then, where one person, one Israelite, would steal one sheep, and as revenge, I would steal two sheep, and as his revenge, he would take two sheep and a goat, and so forth, and it would eventually escalate into this uncontrollable conflict. And even more seriously, this would often even lead to even murder and killing, even amongst fellow tribesmen and blood feuds. So this restricted one's personal retribution. The second thing it did was it also provided an objective, civil way to handle these personal crimes. It prevented you from taking private retaliation and, and, and not to take these things in the matter of your own hands. But it provided a judicial system so that whenever an act of wrongdoing has been committed against you, immediately you don't take up the case with your own hands, but you go to the civil courts. And there, the leaders, they will designate what kind of retribution fits the crime, both in kind and in degree. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this was a very fair, just, and a very simple way to settle many of the fairs. Now, why did God implement this law in the Old Testament? And even today, why is this the basis for a lot of our civil courts today? Because in our sinful nature, whenever there has been an act of crime committed against you, you and I, we have a tendency to not only pay back with the same amount, but we want to add a little extra on top of it. We want to put a little sauce on top of that revenge, don't we? Because not only do we want to get back at them, but we want to pay back more, pay back with interest in revenge. If you ever grew up with siblings, you know this very well. Randomly, your brother or sister hits you on the shoulder, and you hit him back. But do you ever hit with the same amount of force? Never. You got to hit a little bit harder. And then what happens? Return. They hit a little bit harder. And by the time you know it, you guys are wrestling on the ground in this all-out war. It always escalates. Why? Because we never want to give back the same amount, 
We want to give a little more. I remember when I was driving, I was just driving on 476, and this one car cut me off, and he's speeding up on 476. And instinctively, you know what my thought was? I hope he gets caught. I hope he gets the speeding ticket. Now, I heard Pastor Dwight shared a similar incident. He actually was hoping that a car like that would actually crash. So I'm not as bad as him. <laughs> but I was hoping, I hope that he gets caught. Is that the same amount of damage that has been occurred, incurred to me? No. I want something more. And if I'm driving and I see that car being stopped by a state trooper, I'm happy because he's getting more than what he did to me. So we have this sinful tendency. And so you can imagine what the intent of this law was. But in actuality, in Jesus' time, what was actually happening was people were taking advantage of this law. They were using this law and saying, this is my right to take matters into my own hands. And they were going after each other personally. You did this to me because of this Old Testament law. I can do what I want with you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And to make matters worse, the Pharisees, they were encouraging this kind of behavior. They're using God's law, which, which the intent was to limit retribution, was to limit personal action, but they were using it for their own personal agendas to pay back in damages to make them feel better, to relieve their personal vendettas. So you can only imagine the corruption and the damages and even the disorder that existed in Jesus' time. Now, underneath this desire for revenge, this desire to act out in personal anger towards your enemy, underneath all of that, it's a matter of what you believe. It's a matter of what you believe because it's a belief that you need to take justice into your own hands. But the danger with that kind of thinking is that, that you need to personally act out in revenge. Is in down, deep down inside, you believe that God is unable, that God is incapable of establishing justice against whatever crime has been done against you. And that is sinful because at the core of it, it is unbelief. It is a lack of trust in the goodness of God, in the perfect justice of God, the thorough justice of God. God says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. And recompass for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. Their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Paul, when he writes to the Roman Christians who are facing extreme persecution, social oppression, financial loss, even being killed for their faith, and he writes to those Christians in Romans 12, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's a question of, do you believe that God is a God of justice? That he is impartial, that he holds account 
every ounce of injustice that has been committed from the beginning of time to the day he returns. We must not forget who God is. He is the God of perfect justice. And when we fail to believe that, what's the result? I need to pick up a weapon. I need to make sure that justice is established in my situation. But God says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide the disputes for strong nations. And we might ask, how is that? Where do we see God's justice? And let me point you to three directions to look for God's justice. The first is the civil government, the secular government. God himself is the one who establishes the civil state. How? As his instrument. We call it God's divine institution, where he even uses the secular government to do what? To protect the innocent, to establish and execute law and order. So that state trooper, partly it's in God's plan to use that state trooper to execute justice on that car. So if you break the law, civil authorities, they will punish you. And we must see that as God's instrument in establishing his justice. That's why Paul, he writes to those Roman Christians, submit to your authorities, for they are God's servants. But at the same time, we know that the government oftentimes fail in many aspects. And especially in those times, rather than personally taking justice into our own hands, here's the second place where we can look for God's justice. And it's that final day of judgment. When Jesus returns, and when he returns, he will execute justice on all the instances where this government fails. He will even execute justice on the, all the acts of sin and evil that's been done in private that no one knows about. Listen to this in one of the final chapters of Revelation. This is John. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And then I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. Now, if you truly believe in who God is as the God of justice, that through the civil government that God establishes justice, on that final day, God will execute and make all things right. You don't need to take justice in your own hands. Rather, you leave vengeance up to God and you trust that God will thoroughly and perfectly enact his justice, either in the present or in the future. And only when you believe that, where the escalation of violence and hate will stop and revenge will stop. There's a, a Christian philosopher by the name of Miroslav Volf, and he's mentioned a lot. And he's a New York Times writer, and, and he writes uh, on a lot of topics. And uh, he's a, uh, he once said, talking about his experiences back in Croatia, uh, in the early 90s, if you remember, there was a lot of violence in the nation of Croatia, uh, uh, what they called ethnic cleansing. 
And you know how dangerous those terms can be. And he himself experienced some of the tragedies of that time. And he himself, he says, that the only way that this cycle of violence can stop is when I believe that God will make sure that all justice will be handled. Once I believe in divine justice, then I can trust that God will hold all things to account. He says, this practice of nonviolence, it requires a belief in divine justice. If I ever believe that there is no God, or if I don't believe that God is a God of justice, then I will feel justified or at least provided the incentive to pick up a weapon and take matters into my own hands. So therefore, the only way to prohibit recourse to violence by ourselves is to fully believe that God alone has that right and that he will square all accounts someday. Only having that kind of belief and trust in the justice of God enables him to not pick up a weapon and retaliate in a personal matter. Now I said there's three places where you can find God's justice, the civil government on that final day, but there's one more place. Because even though the civil government enacts justice, oftentimes it fails. We see that it is also on that last day, on God's final judgment. But if you think about it, if God is going to be thorough with his justice on that last day, that means you and I will stand accused for all the acts of injustice that you have committed against God and against all those around you. But for those who place their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, then where is the execution of the justice that you and I deserve? It's not on that final day, but it's on the cross. And that's the third place we see justice, where Jesus received the justice that you and I deserve. And so having faith and belief in this God of justice enables us to not take matters into our own hands. We trust that vengeance is God's and not ours. So that's the first thing Jesus is saying, don't do. Now let's look at the second thing. What is he speaking for? And he's speaking for this kind of proactive love for our neighbors. And to do that, he uses four real-life examples back then. So I'm going to go through these four examples, starting at verse 39. First, he says that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, that you are to turn to your left, leaving it open for your left cheek to be slapped. Now, the fact that Jesus specifies your right cheek, what he's doing is, if you can kind of envision with me, he's describing a, a, a backhand slap to your right, right cheek right here. So in order for that to happen, he needs to backhand slap you. He can't slap you like this, right? It's just awkward. So he needs to backhand slap you. So what Jesus is getting at is, yes, it's physically painful, but even more painful is the humiliation of a backhand slap. That's what he's talking about. Because culturally, in that time of, uh, where it was uh, such a uh, highly regarded, uh, this honor and shame culture, this act was seen as an act of contempt. In fact, it was seen as such an offense, offense that both the Roman and Jewish law permitted retaliation. In fact, they allowed double the damages to be given. And so while it is your right to retaliate and the law even allows for it, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. 
In verse 40, he says, if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, tunic is kind of like your inner shirt. And you're being sued and you have that taken away. Now, in such a situation, what is our typical response? We want to hold on tightly to whatever we have left, right? We want to hold on to what's remaining. But what's going on is Jesus saying, give them your cloak as well. And your cloak is kind of like your outer garment, your, your coat. And he's saying, give him even your cloak. And that's very powerful because back then, you never gave someone your cloak. Because what the cloak served was not only was it an outer garment, but it was also used as a blanket so that it can keep you warm in that desert area. And so because of the, the security and the welfare that this cloak uh, brought, it was actually in the Old Testament that you never give your cloak in, on, in any circumstance. Exodus 22, it says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, make sure you return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? So all to say that it was this inalienable right that, fine, you can take everything else, but not the cloak. But even with that, Jesus says, give it up. Even though everyone had the right to their own cloak, even when they're being accused, nevertheless, even your own cloak, give it up to the very person who is suing you. Let's look at the third example, verse 41. Here, he's describing a situation when someone is forcing you to walk one mile with him. And he's saying, instead of one mile, walk two miles. Now, most likely what Jesus is referring to is a situation that happened a lot of the times where uh, the Roman soldiers, if you remember, the Jews, they were under Roman oppression, Roman occupation. And now what the Roman soldiers were allowed to do is that whenever they were carrying their belongings, they had the right to ask any Jewish citizen to carry their stuff for a mile. And oftentimes, they would take advantage of it. A lot of the times, they would even pick elderly Jewish citizens, all to just humiliate them. Because by law, they had to carry their belongings for a mile. So can you imagine just how sensitive just how uh, offensive this could have been to Jesus' hearers. And he's saying to them, walk two miles. Even though by law, by right, you can only say, I only have to walk a mile and carry your stuff. But he's saying, even in that situation, walk the extra mile. We see this in the Bible. If you remember, when Jesus, he, he's carrying his cross onto the hill of Calvary. If you remember, he was so beaten, so worn down, that he physically couldn't carry his own cross. So what did the Roman soldiers do? They picked out a Jewish citizen, Simon of Cyrene, and he said, carry Jesus' cross. That's this going on. And in that situation, Jesus is saying, walk an extra mile and smile. The fourth example he gives in verse 42, a very common situation back then and even now where if a beggar asks something from, uh, something from you or if someone asks to borrow something from you, he says, do not hesitate in being generous towards them. Now, Jesus is using these four examples to communicate a message. Now, we got to be careful not to take these examples as, as literal takeaways because, let me ask you, when was the last time you've been backhanded? Can you really apply this verse? Or when was the last time a soldier forced you to carry his stuff for a mile? So obviously, it's not a literal command we are to take, but we have to see what Jesus is communicating behind this 
example. If we applied it literally, if someone ever robbed you and took your shirt, it'd be like you saying, wait, 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 you forgot my jacket. Here's my iPhone. Here's my wallet. How ridiculous is that, right? What Jesus is doing is using hyperbole, hyperbole. And we hear it all the time. Actually, in fact, Jesus just recently used it. If you remember, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Gouge it out. Not literally gouge it out, but what he's trying to communicate is that sexual sin is serious, and therefore you must act seriously. That's his message. So likewise, this is hyperbole. What's the message behind it? If we don't understand it correctly, then, then we actually might receive the short end of the stick. There was an example of this university student in Cambridge University, which is ironic because Cambridge is one of the top-notch schools, and this student didn't know what a hyperbole was. So he read this passage, he went out onto the streets, and he literally gave his tuition and all of his money to the beggars on the street. And what ended up happening was he himself ended up on the street, and he got to know these beggars firsthandly, and he found out that they used his money for drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and he took this literally. And so we can see that's not what Jesus is saying. As Augustine rightly said, give to everyone that asks. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying Give everything to him that asks. So what is Jesus getting at? He's saying, as a Christian, you should not be so concerned with what is rightfully entitled to you. You should not be so concerned with what is rightfully yours. When someone backhands you across the cheek, don't be so consumed with the entitlement of your pride and honor and give him your left cheek. When someone sues you and takes your tunic, don't feel like this is your inalienable right to hold on to the rest of your belongings. When someone takes you to walk a mile, don't be so consumed with your time. This is my time that you hold on so tightly, but even give that up for your enemies. When someone begs from you and asks of you, don't be so consumed by thinking, this is my money. This is my hard-worked, hard-earned belonging. I have the right to this. It's up to me whether I want to give it to you or not. He's saying Christians don't think like that. Their MO is not about what they're entitled to. But their MO is how can I love and serve the neighbor next to me? And the only way we can do this, the only way you can give up your rights is when you know that you have something far greater. Kingdom citizens, they can only give up our rights whenever, uh, we, whenever we feel we're entitled to them, only when we realize we have something so much greater, and that is God himself. And with him, the Bible says that you are co-heirs of the universe. That means everything that Jesus owns is ours. Everything. On top of that, you have every spiritual blessing, every imaginable joy and the love of God. We have all eternity to enjoy such things. So if that is true for you, then what is 20, 30, 40 years? What is carrying and walking that extra mile? What is our pride, our rights? In comparison, it pales. Therefore, only when we know the value of what we have, only then can we willingly give up our rights? My uncle, who I'm very close with, 
He had a very uh, difficult upbringing. Uh, he was the only son of my grandfather's second wife. So you can imagine uh, the kind of cold treatment he got from the five other siblings who had a different mother. My father, my uncle, so forth. On top of that, he lost his mother at a very young age uh, from cancer, and he grew up in this small village. And eventually came to the States. He lived with us. We actually shared the same room, him, my grandfather, and myself. And he worked really hard uh, to pay for his way through college. And to make a long story short, he ended up being a very a successful, a top engineer at Apple, and making a lot of money and having a lot of influence. And to many of us, we're thinking, wow, finally, he made it. What an incredible journey. He's finally successful. But about a year and a half ago, uh, he actually lost his wife to cancer again. And with this wife, he had three daughters. And as a result of that, having lost his mother and having lost his wife, he actually quit his job. And now he works at a significantly less demanding and rest, less rewarding job. And at face value, people ask him, our family, we ask him, you know, why would you quit such a prestigious job? And he said it very clearly, very easy to give that up because now his focus was on the value of what he already has, his three daughters. And because he values that so much, losing his job meant nothing to him. And he would rather enjoy being with them and give up whatever career success he earned. And so only when you know the value of what you already have, only then can you so willingly give up these things. And that's what Jesus is saying. Kingdom citizens, do you know what's truly yours? Do you know what God has in store for us in heaven? And do you know the reality of what is available to us now? Dwell on that rather than what's mine. What am I entitled to? He's describing what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not the primary MO of Christians, but the primary MO, this drive is the question of how can I love, how can I serve my neighbor, and even more, how can I love and serve even my enemy? By Jesus' time, the people, they're changing this Old Testament law. They're distorting it. In fact, they even added on to it where it originally said you shall love your neighbors. You know what they added on to that? And you shall hate your enemies. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God say, hate your enemies. And so you can see the liberty that they took. And in verse 43, he calls them out on it. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the Jewish leaders, they tried to tame this law by restricting who their neighbor was. My fellow Jews are my neighbors. So I'm allowed to hate Gentiles and the Romans and everyone else who's not within this circle that I've created. And if you remember the parable of the Samaritan, the question is not who is my neighbor, but rather who are you being a neighbor to? If you remember, one does not have a neighbor. One is a neighbor. Or better yet, one becomes a neighbor. And so Jesus clarifies here. Even your enemies 
They are your neighbors. Love them and serve them. And what he's saying, he's not saying, okay, you have to emotionally like them. That's something very different. He's not saying you have to have these warm, fuzzy feelings towards them. But there is a difference between feeling love versus volitionally and acting out willingly in love. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. C.S. Lewis explains it like this. Regarding your enemies, don't waste your time bothering whether you feel love towards your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do, we're going to find one of the greatest secrets. And the secret is when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love that person. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him even more. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. But the Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, and if I may add, even enemies, he finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking in the beginning. It's this inner volitional will that wants what's best for our enemies. And Jesus says the most immediate act you could do right now is, is pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. John Piper says that prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love. Why? Because when you pray for them, you're praying for their benefit. You're praying for them that they may come to know the love of God. You're praying that they may see their own sins and that they'll come to repentance. You're praying for their ultimate good so that they may know the love of Christ and to know God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, post, a pastor theologian who lived under the oppression of the Nazi regime. And he even died directly as a result of them. And he says this, this right here, this is the supreme command that through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. Let's end with this application. This is one of the hardest commands that Jesus gives us. And as soon as we translate this command, into our lives, as soon as you try to apply this to the faces of your enemies, to those people who've wronged you, not only does it seem difficult, it seems downright impossible, right? Which is why we need to look at this final verse. Verse 48, it reads, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And right there, our initial knee-jerk reaction might be to just dismiss all of this. What? No wonder I can't be perfect like God, and therefore I can't forgive and love my enemies. And on the other hand, we might think, Jesus, you don't really know what I've been through. You don't know the whole story. And with that, I encourage you with this final application. It comes straight from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and it says, Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary 
or faint-hearted. Consider him. Consider Jesus who does know the pain and the hurt that you've been through. And without minimizing any of the personal hurts and suffering, consider that he endured the pain that you and I will never have to experience. The pain from being rejected from his own father and receiving the punishment for all the injustices that you and I deserve. The injustices that we've committed, that the justice that we should have gotten on that final day, how Jesus experienced that, consider that. Consider how he came into this world. That he knew the very pain that he was going to take on. Consider how he lived a life of rejection where he would daily give up his rights, his rights as the eternal creator of the universe. And yet, that same creator has no place to lay his head. Gave up his rights to be worshipped, to be exalted, and instead he humbled himself by taking the form of a man. And he laid down his rights, and we took advantage of that. All because of our sins. And we placed him on that cross. And all the while, Jesus did not harbor an ounce of hatred towards you, his enemies. And instead, the very words, the first words that comes out of his mouth is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prayed for us, his enemies. Consider him who gave up his rights. Consider him who turned the other cheek. Consider him who walked that extra mile in showing you grace. Consider him who did not hold back any of his love, but generously gave and bestowed it on to you. Consider him who did not hate his enemies, but he prayed for them at his weakest moment where he endured pain and suffering this world has never known. And when you consider him, Whenever somebody reviles you for your faith, whenever you are a victim, we can get on our knees and pray even for our enemies. We can pray for their good. And as we pray, the miraculous thing, the very first thing that God does, he doesn't change your enemy's heart. He changes yours. He conforms your heart to be like his very own because you know what's behind God's heart is to show love towards that enemy. The very same love he showed you. And once we understand that, once we know the heart of the Father, he doesn't see them as enemies. He sees them as sinners the way that he sees us as sinners. And when we pray for them, we come to find that we see them just like us, fellow sinners in need of grace. We must therefore not, not wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some kind of love, we must begin to pray for him when we are conscious of loving him. And we shall find our love first break into a bud, and then it shall blossom. John Stott. Loving our enemies is hard. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. That's why it is said, to return evil for good 
is devilish. To return good for good, that's human. But to return good for evil is divine. It's divine. And when we consider the divine love of Jesus Christ, yes, even loving our enemies is divinely possible. Even tax collectors, even Gentiles, even the rest of the world, they know how to love their very own. What makes Christians different is not when they're good to their fellow neighbor, it's when they love even their enemies. Even people like Brenton Tarrant, the 28-year-old who shot at those two mosques. Jesus is calling us to even pray for him who deserves the most deserving punishment. Yes and yes, that we pray that even he may know how vile his actions were and the path of destruction that he is on. But we also pray that he knows the love of Christ and that even he can seek forgiveness, the very same forgiveness that we received. That's how we're to pray. How many in this world are praying for him? In light of this past week, there's been a lot of stories and there's this one particular victim who experienced very, something very similar a few years ago in 2015. And she was saying how this brought back a lot of her painful memories. And in June of 2015, perhaps you read about it, how on one summer evening, um, there was a church in Charleston, South Carolina called the Emmanuel African Methodist Church. And there, a 21-year-old gunman by the name of Dylan Roof, he enters this church during their Bible study. They actually invite him to participate in this Bible study. And he shoots 10 victims, and nine of them are murdered. Later on, it was found out that he had planned this attack in hopes to begin a, a racial war. And this very church, 200-year-old church, was one of the oldest churches that were involved in this past racial reconciliation. They were very active in the community. Two days later, during that trial, the families of the victims and, and other members of the church, they were allowed to share words with Dylan Roof. And first came a daughter of one of the victims, Nadine Collier, saying the very first words, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but I forgive you. And next, Anthony Thompson, he comes up and says, I just want him to know that I forgive you and my family forgives you. I hope you see this opportunity to repent, confess, and give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. See where his focus is? So that he can change you and change your ways to know that no matter what happens to you now, that you'll be okay and you'll be better off than you are right now. And this is not to minimize how painful it has been for them. 
Because next comes Felicia Sanders, who lost her son. And she says, you killed some of the most beautiful people I know. She says, every fiber of my body hurts. But may God have mercy on you. How does one say that? Because they've experienced this divine forgiveness for their own. And it is divinely possible because Christ made it possible for us to be forgiven for our sins. And when such a love towards our enemies is evident amongst God's people, not only do we consider Jesus, other people consider him as well. How do we become salt and light of this world? When we take these messages and we take it to heart, and we love even our enemies. Sinclair Ferguson said, when someone forces you to walk one mile, gladly walk with him too. Because on that second mile, he'll want to hear about the gospel. That's how the world will know that there is such a divine love. Let's pray. Before we partake in a time of communion,